Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here with uh, my fundamental and always appreciated sidekick of sorts, coordinator in action, Bill Padalo. And I will let you know that today is June 20th, 2019. And as always on the Neil Garfield Show, we're going to be talking about important foreclosure topics. And the topic for today, for those of you who've seen Neil's blog or otherwise have the opportunity to see this, is going to be on the robo-witness. And Neil particularly did a good write-up on this. And Bill Padalo has some really uh, well thought out and and previously well-written analysis on this question as well. of the robo-witness. And the robo-witness, of course, is that witness that shows up at an evidentiary hearing, and I'll I'll go into it a little bit, what exactly an evidentiary hearing is, and when it shows up in these legal cases. So a robo-witness is a witness that's essentially wrote. They're not particularly testifying to matters personally known to them, which as a lot of you will know, is supposed to be the evidence standard. It's supposed to be the fundamental way that you get evidence into a case is you have specific, particularized, personal knowledge, and the person with that knowledge in an expert area like this, which all foreclosure cases involve, that witness is not supposed to be somebody somebody pulled out of a bar. That witness is supposed to be somebody with training, with learning, with experience in the area to which the evidence is directed. So if they're talking about, for instance, certain accounting irregularities in a particular foreclosure case that are at issue, uh, possibly where accounting is one of the legal claims or legal issues in the case, uh, because accounting is one of those interesting terms that some, some judges in California say it isn't uh, an actual legal claim. So I have seen it fled elsewhere and even sometimes in California. It certainly can be a remedy or it can be a collateral matter that is addressed by another cause of action. Bottom line, if you're addressing accounting issues, one would think that you have some training, not necessarily as a formal CPA, not even necessarily as an accountant per se, 
but certainly somebody who's been handling accounting-type documents, ideally for a period of years. Uh, again, if you're just pulled in from the kitchen staff at the uh, servicing firm you supposedly work for, and you're brought in in some other capacity when you're not even really connected with the servicer or the supposed, supposed holder in due course, these are all situations where we see this crazy quilt reality of individuals who clearly have almost literally been pulled off the street to come in and testify in these foreclosure cases. Uh, so again, it is June 20th, 2019, and I am broadcasting live from Southern California, and this is the West Coast Foreclosure Show in a sort of uh, distillation. It's all under the Neil umbrella. Sometimes we focus uh, a bit on West Coast matters. Today, these are going to be more national matters that I think are going to be of interest to everyone across the United States. And I also uh, need to point out that Neil will be back next week. And as always, Neil and, Neil and I typically alternate shows. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Neil thanks you. I thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Uh, now, Bill, if you could come in here uh, now and just uh, tell the listeners uh, a bit about the robo-witness situation as you have seen it, and there's a particular a kind of application of what a witness is supposed to do, and that's a person most knowledgeable, which is what my write-up on today's show covered. Uh, the person testifying in these types of cases, essentially by the, uh, the court cases that have, that have brought each one of these lawsuits forward to where it is, in other words, the person most knowledgeable, PMK, that's actually a term in these foreclosure cases. Uh, Bill's going to tell you about that, and he's going to tell you how that all plays into this whole institutional reality slash problem of robo-witness. So go ahead and take it away, Bill. <laughs> well, sure. Thanks, Charles. Well, you know, we live in a news cycle where, you know, we find great information and then probably within a couple of days uh, we move on to the next topic and forget about uh, that story. And and in this realm that uh, I'm certainly in and that we're in uh, on a regular basis, I, I brought up the fact of this uh, task force in 2007 that was assembled in Texas. Uh, it was a foreclosure uh, task force, and we've talked about it on previous shows maybe a year or so ago. But back in 2007, uh, this, for, this group was assembled of, uh, and it was, the transcript is before the uh, Supreme Court in Texas, and they assembled judges and attorneys and a lot of the attorneys that were involved in hashing out the issues that they were 
uh, foreseeing in the onslaught of foreclosures that were coming just ahead, the, the storm that laid ahead, um, they were trying to address how to get around uh, or through some of these issues that they were going to face on a regular basis. So they assembled this foreclosure task force, and many of these attorneys uh, in this transcript went on to uh, become a part of uh, foreclosure mill firms all throughout the United States, even on the heels of the information uh, that they discuss and the issues that they discuss. And basically, uh, this this transcript needs to be recycled on a regular basis. We have to continuously uh, put the, or look at this because it's the root cause of why we're seeing what we are to this day and why it's so persistent and it's not getting any better. And and the root of it in this transcript uh, is that they discuss the fact and they admit in, in, in this, uh, this hearing a number of things, one of which is that they can't identify the owner and holder investor of any of these loans and that the closest thing that you're going to find to identifying who the investor would be is just simply the servicer. And they talk about, and the judges show their concern as to, well, how are, there, there can't possibly be any witnesses uh, who could come forth and testify with personal knowledge to any of this. And the attorneys and everybody agree. And they say, you're absolutely correct. And so they strategize and say, well, how are we going to get around that if there's nobody who can attest to any of this? And so the one thing the uh, one of the judges suggests is, well, you know, I guess if they speak to uh, business records, if they if they at least say that they looked at business records, well, okay, we all know how you know that plays into multiple hearsay and the boarding processes and whatnot, and how defective and problematic that is, but. What's really uh, telling about this <clears throat> is that they they basically admit that they're going to march forward and try to and prosecute this stuff without any of the the necessary elements to prove that they're the party who has the right to uh, foreclose. And so, when you're facing uh, witnesses now in these cases, and I see it routinely on a daily basis. Uh, a fortune is spent in discovery trying to first send out uh, all of your discovery requests in the form of RFAs, requests for admissions, production of documents, and interrogatories to the opposing side. And the first thing usually that comes back is a whole plethora of objections to just about every specific document that you're looking for. And eventually when you ask them to depose a witness with the most knowledge who can answer these questions, they'll say, and usually their response is, but we'll produce a witness. Uh, they don't, they wait till the last minute before they identify who that witness is that eventually shows up at the table. But when they do, uh, it's, it's, it's the same pattern over and over and over. They basically can't answer any of the relevant questions as to any of the transactions, the the existence of the trust, the notes and their authenticity and custodial history, uh, you name it, they basically um, cannot answer any of those uh, questions. But what's very important is, and Neil points this out, uh, 
when, when he lays out how to attack this stuff to some degree, is you have to understand if your witness is a representative of the claimant or the servicer. And it's very important to really drill down as to their authority and who they're speaking on behalf of. Because my position from my chair and what I'm seeing on a daily basis is uh, I point to the holes and the defects and the deficiencies and the gaps in the story. And what I'm looking for in terms of evidence to complete my investigation and render an ultimate uh, opinion because their side and their story is so chock full of so many gaps and issues and problems and documents that they're getting presumptions on or they attempt to get presumption on, presumptions on that don't exist and haven't been produced and I need to review them. And, uh, and so I'm pointing, pointing to these gaps, but it's really important to to drill down on their authority to even be in the deposition or even speak as a witness. And what's very telling is that when you ask them who they represent, a lot of times they're, they're really unsure and they really can't answer that question. It's sort of like asking when we ask the question, who's entitled to the proceeds of the liquidation? I, I don't know. I mean, of course, they don't know much of anything. But um, when we say – how do you get the authority as a servicer? Let's say, okay, so let's say they represent the servicer. How does the servicer have authority to represent XYZ Trust? What document gives you that right? Now, they don't typically come up with anything other than a power of attorney document. And when those power and they never produce that power of attorney document very seldom because if they do, it's usually got many many issues that open it and make it susceptible to attack. But one of the things in the foreclosure task force, when they were trying to gauge how to get around these witness issues, is they said, I think what we're going to see is power of attorney documents being produced on a regular basis by these witnesses saying this is where where their authority stems from. And one of the judges in the task force says, well, that isn't going to cut it. That just just isn't proper. And... and, uh, and, and realized early on that um, if, if they're going to start relying on power of attorney documents, uh, that's they, they anticipated anyway that um, that that was going to be open season really for for attack by the opposition. Well, of course, that's what they're using to this day, and it is very uh, problematic for them oftentimes when you read the fine print of those. But but anyway, these witnesses seldom can even explain. Uh, again, uh, where they get the authority, what document gives them the authority, what cor- is there a corporate resolution, is there anything from their employer uh, that states that they have the authority to either sign as officers and even appear as witnesses, and many times they can't answer that question. Uh, and so right there, um, you have a, a major problem, as I'm sure you, you would agree, right, Charles? <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, I mean, would you say it's also the case that, because it's true, there's a lot of uh, kind of finessing and sleight of hand that goes on in these situations where somebody's given the role of officer, which happens to fit the evidentiary need of the of the moment in front of whatever hearing it is, would you say it's also the case that 
there is quite a bit of finessing regarding the training of the individual, you know, whatever institution they're actually tied to. And however, they get away with representing that there's some officer that really yesterday they weren't <laughs> or that it's somehow overlapping with, you know, five other institutions. I mean, what, what is your take on the level of training that the individuals have when they come to testify? I mean, so, so, sell them to little, Charles. I mean, um, these these witnesses are traveling around with laptops. They they go to an office uh, maybe at the most once a week or twice a week, uh, but they work from home and they travel with laptops. And what they do is they prepare for these uh, trials and depositions at the last minute, and it's usually within 24 hours of the event. And then they call into the law firm and basically get up to speed and coached on what to what to say and what documents uh, uh, are going to be presented in, let's say, the deposition. So, which is interesting because when you do the uh, the document request and the discovery, uh, a lot of times the the uh, the answers will come back from the servicer and the party, the witness, uh, who says, "I." You know, these, I'm answering these questions on behalf of the servicer, and I'm presenting all these documents. And then you get to the deposition table, and you say, okay, well, you produce these documents. And they say, well, they have no knowledge of it. Uh, absolutely none. And they were required by the $25 billion consent judgment and many of the consent judgments that they had to go through very specific training on these servicing systems and their platforms and, and pass and have certification available to present to show their training. They don't have it, and they've been violating that, whether the consent judgment's expired or not. They simply have not complied. And so uh, I was just involved in a deposition uh, earlier in the week assisting, and uh, every basic question about the, 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 the information and the screenshots that came from the servicing platform, they couldn't answer or refused to answer and just simply said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know everything from the investor codes to the transfer dates and it's just i don't know so they're stonewalling on that front but one thing i think it's really important here is is uh and and i've got a case example in illinois and i and some of you have heard of uh, dan kwaja he's an outstanding attorney in illinois and he's i think he's been on the show once before but um, he's really aggressive yes, yeah. in prosecuting this stuff, and I, I, I'm and I and he's he really dots his eyes and crosses his t's. But anyway, uh, in, we're involved in a case where uh, he basically got out in front of this thing and started attacking aggressively on the opposition bank in New York Mellon as trustee of XYZ Trust. I think it was a, I think that was a trust. Anyway, off the top of my head, but anyhow. Um, he immediately, the client, uh, wanted to prosecute aggressively, and they went after and inspected the note. And the inspection initially, uh, or initially, but it comes back as, of course, being a counterfeit and so on and so forth. And so he immediately moved for summary judgment, saying, look, the plaintiff in this case produced a fraudulent uh, counterfeit note, and therefore they obviously don't have standing <laughs> uh, uh, because they, they, they don't um, – they don't have the goods, right? And so it forced the opposition. They got it back on their heels, and they had to respond to that. And what happened is the court says, well, I'm going to give the servicer an opportunity to address this and um, in a deposition. 
and answer these questions or whatever before I make any decisions or ruling on this. And it was great because now the witness and the opposition, the servicer, knows exactly what the issue is before them, that that the note was inspected and the signatures and endorsements, there, it's a counterfeit. They knew that going in, and, and, and so uh, they brought in a witness knowing that this was the issue and that they were going to be allowed to address it, and their witness came in and basically said, I know nothing. Uh, is this a counterfeit note? I don't know. Everything was I don't know. So <laughs> there you have it. I mean, they had every opportunity, an ample opportunity, to rebut uh, the findings and the evidence and the affidavit of the of the inspection of the note. And at the end of the day, no rebuttal. And 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 that's really too what I see on my end. Even though I'm not a document examiner per se, but um, many of the times that I come in and I show evidence that I have assembled on these uh, particular institutions from cases over 10 years across the country, and I lay it all out and spell my opinions. I'm, I'm never rebutted uh, in terms of the evidence I produce or my affidavits by anybody from the opposition. They basically uh, try to kill the messenger and say, ah, oh, strike them or whatever, but they never challenge and have anybody come toe-to-toe and say, no, uh, Padalo's full of it, here's why, here's what. Here's where he's made his mistake, or whatever it is, they simply never do that. <laughs> well, the other side <clears throat> is very much street school, so to speak. We're not talking academia here, though I'm sure there's a tie-in there. Uh, but they are very uh, studied and studied at deflecting. And they do a brilliant job of it in, in a number of cases. So, I mean, in essence, it creates a situation where the evidence that you want to have properly vetted by the court and the evidence that you want to have properly scrutinized from our side, for instance, it doesn't happen. Uh, I, I, at this juncture, I'm just going to provide some uh, pearls of w- wisdom from Neil here. He has um, sent uh, – I have some some thoughts of his here, and some of this is so uh, brilliant that I, I feel uh, listeners should hear it directly. Uh, first is how he, de- he des- defines robo-signing. Robo-signing is the act of placing a signature on a document on behalf of a person – who knows, who knows nothing about the document and who probably has no authority to perform the act that appears facially valid on the document. Very succinct and uh, to the point. I mean, it's essentially saying, here's a guy, here's a gal sometimes. They're signing this document. They really don't know anything about the document. And as Bill has pointed out, they don't have authority to be attesting to anything about this specific document. Uh, And then Neil goes on uh, later on. For the same reason, the perpetrators, that is investment banks, employ vendor and servicers who are often in charge of robo-signing, have the servicer select a witness to testify at trial as the corporate representative of the claimant. This is the robo-witness. And finally, no matter how bad it goes on cross-examination, 
the witness can neither testify nor admit to facts because the witness doesn't know them. This limits the risk to the investment bank. And even if perjury is asserted or fraud, it appears as the fraud of the servicer and not the investment bank, who is calling the shots but is nowhere to be seen in the case. Unless, of course, the homeowner brings them in through a counterclaim or makes them relevant through an affirmative defense. And this is also a brilliant analysis because it, it very much provides high relief to the principle that if you have a witness that doesn't know anything, and this is often true at a deposition as well, uh, and again, this is just a real brief kind of law 101 primer for everybody. Uh, there is such a thing as an evidentiary hearing, which you can schedule in either state or federal court through a properly noticed motion. Uh, the way that this is done is, is somewhat complicated and certainly local rule specific. I won't get into the details. These types of hearings uh, are predicated on fairly precise and certain procedural maneuvers available at particular junctures in a legal case. So I know that's a lot to unpack. What we can talk about is the vast majority of where you will, the vast majority of the time where you will see an evidentiary hearing, and that is at the motion for summary judgment and the trial. So remember the motion to dismiss, that's what we, we typically see in these foreclosure cases when the plaintiff is the borrower. The motion to dismiss stage is where the institutional defendant says, look, you don't even have a case there's going to be no real entertainment of evidence because a motion to dismiss in any legal case means even if we treat it as true, the facts you presented, in essence, the evidence that would stem from those facts, even if we treated that as all is true, you still don't have a legal claim to go forward in this lawsuit. That's what a motion to dismiss is meant to accomplish, which is kill the case and that's how it operates. So a motion to dismiss is the opposite of an evidentiary hearing. All so-called evidence, all facts supporting same are assumed to be true. But if it still doesn't make out a legal case and there's no liability on the other side, even given those facts and the associated evidence, then there's no case. Should be rare in law, is rare in law in most places, but not in foreclosure cases. So where you do see the evidence, evidentiary hearing in the vast majority of cases, whether it's foreclosure or not, you see it in a motion for summary judgment, which is absolutely meant to sift evidence. And that's where you have affidavits, declarations of various kinds, where you're supposed to have an individual who's familiar with the evidence. And same at trial. The rules of trial, evidentiary proceeding, of course, are complicated and very involved. But those are the two places where you are going to have an evidentiary hearing, just as a matter of the way the, the process works. All motions for summary judgment are evidentiary hearings. All trials are evidentiary hearings. Uh, so, you know, when you're in those, you want the proper rules to be followed, and yet in this foreclosure arena, as Bill has well established and exposed on this show today, 
that often doesn't happen. You have what amount of shills, brought in at the last minute, coached the entire way, who then pick up and drive or fly to the next city to do it all over again, except this time they're wearing a different hat with a different company, taking on a different role, claiming to be an expert in a different area. I mean, this is open fraud, and I don't say that as a legal conclusion or a legal term. I'm talking in the vernacular. And remember, this show is not about legal advice. It's about discussing topics and giving information to listeners so they can then take that information and follow up, and follow up with attorneys. I do want to say one uh, last thing uh, that's a related topic. Uh, someone brought to me today an attorney in the, in the Midwest who's a good friend and has coordinated with this show. He brought up uh, the issue of uh, some uh, some matters related to his own situation and, and previous case. This involves Chase. It, it involves uh, even uh, a, a crazy quilt situation where the judge was shot at a strip club uh, a month before uh, a judicial conference involved in the case. Uh, I, I do believe this individual might be interested in coming on the show to discuss these matters. Um, and it, it just ties in with attorney obligations. Attorneys have obligations for truthfulness and confidentiality. They're not supposed to be presenting robo-evidence. All the time we have for today, and I will be back with everyone in a couple of weeks. Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Thank you, Charles.